Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. If you know your way around a cocktail menu, chances are you're comfortable with ordering a drink dry or wet or up or on the rocks. But are you familiar with a cocktail being served in or out? If you are, then you're no doubt acquainted with the subject of today's show, pink gin. And if you're not, then let me start by saying we're not here to talk about the colored sweet stuff that's infiltrated the market in recent times. Pink gin, the cocktail, is one of the world's simplest concoctions made with two ingredients that you can expect to find in every single professional bar. Despite being drenched in history and looking absolutely fabulous, by the way, it remains an outsider, largely forgotten by the bartending industry. Sebastian Hamilton Mudge wants to change that, and he's armed with no shortage of enthusiasm and historical nuggets to get you on side. So what exactly is Pink Gin, listener? Well, it's whatever you want it to be, as we're going to find out. It's a quintessential... <coughs> oh my god, a little fly just flew in my mouth. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Didn't realise we were being joined by uh, a fourth party here. It's oh good my content, god. don't worry, it's good content. Oh, oh my god, I'm Mike Pence. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, dude. Oh, <laughs> Welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College. With me today, I have Sebastian Hamilton Mudge. Sebastian, fantastic name, by the way. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, good to see you. Sorry, we were just saying off air before that. How can you can you tell us your full name? Because I think it might be the most English name that I've ever come across, and I love it. Uh, yeah, uh, Sebastian Justin Thomas Hamilton Mudge. Fantastic, and yeah, <laughs> I think more than anything that we're about to discuss, that gives you the credentials to explore today's cocktail because this is a classic and probably forgotten or mainly forgotten British cocktail, and the cocktail's pink gin. And I want to get something out of the way first because a lot of people listening to this might be thinking, oh yeah, pink gin, that's this trend that's happening soon. Maybe I've seen a bottle from Beefeater. We are not talking about that today, right, Seb? We're talking about the pink gin cocktail, which is a very old, iconic, arguably one of the oldest cocktails out there. Amazing. And before we dive into it, can you tell us a little bit about your experience, um, the path on, on, on getting, getting to here today, maybe arguably the, the highest of your achievements? No, I'm joking. But how, how, do, you, how do you arrive today? What, what's your career looked like so far? And also, yeah, I think that is actually what gives you the, the, the real kind of um, the credentials to, to be exploring this and, and explaining it to us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I started bartending in the UK in, in the mid 90s. Um, it was a way to pay to, to take trips. And uh, I was going through art college at the time as well. And I'd, I'd worked as a, as a waiter or a server um, for, for since about the age of 14, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it was a good way to earn a bit of money to travel around. And then I ended up behind the bar, at, you know, in the UK, it can be a bit, bit earlier than in the US. So from the age of 18, by about the age of 18 and a half, as all 18-year-olds are, I knew everything there was about bartending, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you know, the arrogance of youth. Um, and then, uh, strangely enough, I, I 
you know, it was just around that time as the cocktail was starting to see sort of some green shoots. Um, there'd obviously been some real pioneers out there already, um, but it was just starting to trickle back into the mainstream. And uh, I got approached by a company. Actually, I wasn't in London those days. I was, I was in a city called Bristol and oh, nice. uh, got approached to become part of this uh, professional team. And they, they really sold it on it being a career. And, you know, there was training and we were going to be like, doing three or four weeks of, of education before we even started. We could even make a drink for anyone. With booze. And, and I found this utterly intriguing, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I think much to my mother's dismay at the time, I explained that uh, I was not going to, you know, because I deferred my history degree um, to, you know, go and do something obviously sensible with my life to go and do art. So she put up with that for a year and then thought I'd go back and do the history degree. And much to her <laughs> delight, I was like, I could be a professional bartender. Uh, so, you know, and, and it was funny, I think that generation or, or my generation, we, I think we're all very passionate in the way that if we're still in it now, cause you had to be, and also in the UK, you didn't really earn any tips. I mean, you weren't right. tips, uh, serving food, but the thought of tipping out some uh, bartender, it would be laughable. Uh, so, you know, you really did it. It was terrible hours, uh, minimal pay, uh, and zero tips. I mean, I have no idea, but you really know, selling think- it. Yeah, so you have to absolutely love it. You and have I just to love fell it. in love with it. I fell in love with it. And I, I like I said, I was going to study history. I always had a love of history. Um, I was I was very much a, a dedicated sportsman as well. Uh, I still do a lot of sport these days and surf and, and skate and all sorts of fun things and uh, rock climbing, etc. And um, I found this career that gave me a bit of everything. It gave me, uh, you know, I've been at art college, so I got to make things look pretty in, in glasses. I got to be creative rather than with, you know, sculptural painting, but mm-hmm. with flavor. So I had this creative outlook, uh, outlet, sorry. Um, you know, on a busy service, it was like playing a sport, you know, the, the carnage of service on Saturday night. You know, I worked at <laughs> a couple of very high volume cocktail places where, you know, Point Station, you're just slinging hundreds of drinks. And, and that camaraderie, that teamwork that you get in, in, a, in a good bar team very much kind of gave me that fix yeah uh, and then uh, as my career moved on and and i got more into the you know what we call obviously mixology these days and, and that side of it um the research the studying of history the the appreciation that that to try and shape where drinking might go in the future you you've you've got to pay some reverence and some time to what's already been done um because there's some amazing drinks out there that, that have already been done i mean I, I think it's i mean i'm sure you know, many people have come across times where you go into a restaurant, and you see this drink with a new name and, and you read it and you think, hang on, that's a that's a drink from 60 years ago or 100 years yeah. ago. Or like, and they're claiming it as a, it's like, OK, you haven't <laughs> done it. And like, that can be done accidentally. And it's, 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 it's easily done. There's a but, finite number you know, of ingredients, but still quite you know what a mean? lot of yeah. them. And look, you know, the classics are classics for a reason. And it's because Amen. those ratios just work. And, and, you know, when you're, you know, I spent, many many years educating bartenders and uh it's just those there's so many great simple rules um that just that just work mm-hmm. and and they give you a framework when you are then developing on um it's very rare you reinvent the wheel you know it's mm-hmm. it's there are there are combinations there are ratios that that work and you know they give you a framework to move on with your career 
And so tell us about that. Yeah, just moving on from from working behind the bar to to that role that would essentially see you educating bartenders and also bring you here to the US and and yeah, and and heavily involved with the cocktail that we're going to speak about today. Yeah, I then I, I moved into education. I first of all moved into events, and then in the sort of late nineties, um, I, I got into more sort of education. Um, and it's it's laughable now how much I knew, but I just you know I I done <laughs> I just I guess I knew more than those around me, as it were. So mm. you know it, it really set me on that path, uh, and you know went solidly into that into the educating of bartenders and um and research on my my point of you know from my point of view as well and, and growing my knowledge base and um yeah did actually my first bit of education for plymouth gin so mm-hmm. got my association with gin back in uh, i think 99 wow so it's really day app dating me uh <laughs> met my good friend simon ford i think it was about 98 and that was when i first did my first trip to plymouth gin that was my very first distillery uh then uh yeah, a few years on from that, owned a couple of bars of my own. And then um, the opportunity came up to be Global Ambassador with, with Beef Eater and then with Plymouth Gin as well. So I was Global Ambassador for both those brands for oh, going on nearly nine years, I think it was. Uh, actually, Beef Eater a little shorter because I moved out to the US uh, just over four years, four and a half years ago or so, uh, and, and was based from Los Angeles. Uh, and in that role, I was focused on you know, helping to drive the brand in the US. So stepping away from the global ambassador role, but also uh, having that how on as well. So mm-hmm. was wearing a few hats for those those years. And then, uh, yeah, left there a couple of years ago now uh, and created, uh, you know, with a, with a great group of people here in LA and, and in London, uh, our own agency, creative agency and consultancy. And we've also launched uh, an online platform for education for very much focused on consumers, um, but without dumbing it down if that makes sense so you know if uh if the drinks needs to be well balanced it doesn't matter whether you're professional or whether you're at home you know the drink is either in balance or it's not so you know we've not shied away from the slightly more nerdy topics but trying mm-hmm. to keep it in a in a very sort of subtle light-hearted way as well uh, and that's called candra uh, mm-hmm. short for candid drinks advice that's candradrinks.com so uh Amazing. yeah that's what we're doing today uh, so working with clients still still doing education and uh, and working a lot with with consumers and trying to take that message to consumers because i think it's it's great that the cocktail bar now as a concept has really died in a, in a good way like you, you think back to the 90s early 2000s the cocktail bar the style bar was its own thing and you know over the last you know 20 odd years we've seen cocktails now permeate every every you know you, you can't open a restaurant now uh, and not Without have a strong a bar program. program you know you you can't you know museums in new york now have some of the best bars around you know it's it's yeah. you know you can buy whether they're good or bad it's not the point in some respects but you can buy cocktails in in supermarkets these days yeah. and it, it, whether they're good or not is one thing but some of them are and <laughs> it just goes to show how it's just throughout the entire society now you know cocktails i don't think Anyway, certainly for, for the next few years, isn't a, a trend as it were. It's not. It's not a fad. It, it's, nah. it's really. It's here to stay. Here to stay for and and you know thanks in large part to to the work of fine professionals like yourself. Um, you mentioned that, that that these days maybe with some of your work you don't try and get maybe too nerdy, but we are going to get nerdy today, right? We are getting nerdy because yeah. this is uh, an esoteric drink, um, and. Yeah, tell us tell us all about it. Tell us first of all the ingredients in it simply, and tell us the the history of it and the foundation that really yeah this incredible history that m- many people probably don't realize. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the first one's pretty simple. It's, it's gin and Angostura bitters. Gin and uh, Angostura bitters. Um, yeah, if uh, historically, um, because the the gin uh, on 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 the on the ship at that time would have been Plymouth, so it's it's you know you want to be historically correct. Mm-hmm. You probably want to pick up a bottle of Plymouth gin, mm-hmm. uh, Plymouth and Angostura bitters, and then and and water. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, you well, <laughs> I say water for for people like us. I would say water one hundred percent because for me dilution is fundamentally the most important concept. I think. You know, I think temperature gets talked about a lot and, yeah. you know, all these things. But but for me, unlocking flavor within alcohol with dilution is is something. Actually, I, I get ribbed a lot by other sort of professional friends of mine because, oh, he's talking about dilution again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I still feel like it's it's the one thing that gets missed all the time. And it's the thing I harp on about with young bartenders as well. And and with Beefeater for years, we, we had the world's biggest gin cocktail competition with professionals. And, you know, I was very lucky to travel all, all, all corners of the globe with it. And, um, and it was probably my, my most common bit of feedback was it, it just everything was right. But the, the drink was too tight, you know, yeah. and everyone has experienced this when you take a drink and it's sometimes too sweet and sour at the same time. And you think, well, how can it be too sweet and sour? And you, and you find that they've actually found the balance point of, of acidity and sweetness. But they're both just the dilution's know, not there. The dilution's not there, hmm. you know. And then you haven't unlocked those flavors. You haven't locked the unflat. You know, alcohol's what carries flavor. So mm. you know, you need water uh, or dilution of some degree to actually unlock all those flavors and aromas. And and so for me, that's what pink gin is actually, you know, key to it. Is it's you know, it's it's two ingredients, but it's two ingredients with a humongous number of flavor compounds in them. Yeah. Um, Plymouth's got seven botanicals, but I think uh, I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like sixty-eight or so flavors, different flavor compounds within Plymouth Gin itself. And oh, that's just oh, seven, yeah. seven ingredients, you know, because you've got compounds in each of those botanicals. Those essential oils uh, are made up not of there isn't just a, juniper isn't a flavor; it's no. a flavor created by a whole number of so. There is huge complexity within just juniper itself, you know. So you take a gin with seven, eight, ten, however many botanicals. Uh, then you take Angostura, and we, we we don't know how many botanicals <laughs> go into that. Uh, a a huge lot, number. I'm going to guess. Yeah. So there's a lot of different flavor and complexity in there. And so with the correct amount of dilution to unlock it, you've actually got a really complex uh, and interesting drink um, without, you know, having to add all those other ingredients that we often associate with the cocktail. Mm-hmm. And I guess, yeah, that's just one point too, before we do dial in a little bit more to the history, but this idea of two, not simple ingredients, two very common ingredients, two ingredients that will be on the on the back bar of most people, you know, or people's bars at homes or whatever, or definitely on every single back bar. And that's what blows my mind about this drink, because it, it almost feels when you think about it, like, how can this be complex? How can that take us into the same realm as something like a Sazerac or a Martini? But it absolutely can. Um, but yeah, before we get into that and before we get into best practices for making, tell us about, you know, you, you, you mentioned the British Royal Navy and, you know, historically through time we have we have um, gin for rations, essentially, and then a another ingredient for um, 
fighting disease. I believe one of our guests has called it an anti-scorbutic before. Uh, I guess a, a, a great advantage of uh, using Angostura bitters is that it's that it's it's going to remain stable, right? It's not a fresh ingredient. But how do these two ingredients come together? What what did it look like over time? And and why, if this is such a great drink, why can't I? Why don't I see it on menus? And 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 you know where did it go? Yeah, it's a well, it's a good question. It's uh, I guess you probably you probably go back to Siegert, uh, Doctor Siegert, who uh, he studied uh, medicine in Berlin, and then uh, he was at Battle of Waterloo as an army uh, medic, mm-hmm. uh, and he travelled out with some British and Prussian vets um, to Venezuela in 1824 to join up with Bolivar, who was, uh, they were fighting to, to repel the Spanish out of the northern parts of uh, South America. And they landed in a town called Angostura uh, on the banks of the Orinoco River. And as the, as the rebellion kind of rolled on, uh, he stayed behind. And, and, you know, history is a little fuzzy, but it, it, he certainly remained on there to develop a medicine. And there, there is, talk that he probably worked with the locals there it would make sense uh local people that understood the flora and fauna there and uh you know to really get a hold on what was available and he created uh what was originally called dr Siegert's aromatic bitters in 1824 and yeah it's it's hilarious even going forward many years like the description of what it was actually for there's never seems to be I mean, from from hiccups all the way through to, you know... I was thinking about this the other day, actually. When I was thinking about us recording this show, I've always thought about that bitters being, you know, this this cure-all for ailments, but I've never actually come across what we're using it for, right? Like, you know, limes are for scurvy, I get it, but, like, does bitters, does it just do it all? Does it do anything? I don't know, from a medical (laughs) point of view. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't want to go on the record. I mean, I have to say, with with those years of excessive traveling, uh, when I landed somewhere and I was feeling, you know, it was often my first drink of choice to settle me uh, to just, uh, which makes me sound like a terrible alcoholic or something. But, you know... (laughs) You, you land in, in somewhere like, you know, uh, Korea or something like that uh, after a long flight. And, and my first drink when I'd get to the first bar, I'd sit there and be like, just have a moment of quiet and, and you know, what what's coming up the next day. And I would often drink uh, a pink gin and nice. it just would be a very nice settling, uh, calming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was probably the biggest thing was the stomach complaints. That was really what it became famous for. And um, again, we don't know exactly, exactly when, but at some point the British Navy got hold of it um probably around you know there's there are stories around hms hercules i think it was like 1826 around there the, the being uh, finding a bottle in georgetown in cayman and bringing it on board and, and mixing it with gin on board ship with the skipper there and 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 you know the, the name obviously is probably one thing we should talk about because obviously just a few drops of angostura bitters they turn the the gin itself a beautiful delicate pink color yeah. um, if you go heavy on it, it it gets more kind of orangey in color oh really um, but if a few drops and it has this beautiful kind of pinky color to it and hence the name pink gin mm-hmm. um and and it certainly grew in popularity um but we don't really you know there's no it's it's like many of these great classic cocktails there's no kind of uh it was here then it was written down right. and, and away it went it was definitely something that became popularized throughout the British Navy throughout the 1800s. I mean, it, it first came across to the UK, I think it was 1830. So, you know, it was bouncing around, but it was tiny amounts until uh, I think uh, his son came on board the business 
1853, I think, and they were doing about uh, 20 dozen cases a year. You know, it was, it was still very, very small. So it hadn't exactly uh, blown up at that point. Um, probably one of the flashpoints for the brand was 1862 when they came and, and showed off at the International Exhibition uh, in, in Britain for six months. There right. was supposed to be about six million visitors there over that six month period. So that mm. would have certainly helped. And that is one of the points where they say, oh, he presented pink gin, you know, and had he invented that or had he just seen, you know, the sailors <laughs> drinking it that way? You know, it's uh, sometimes it doesn't matter, does it? It's who makes it famous. But that was certainly a flashpoint. And then probably on from that, you know, when the brand moved um, out to Trinidad and Tobago in 1875 to, you know, what was a British colony, that would have certainly cemented that relationship at that point for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, one of the hangovers probably of that that coming together of Angostura and, and gin, um, as I mentioned, people talked about it for stomach complaints. So the sailors got hold of it and... Uh, Legend has it, it was, a, it was for, they, they drank it for uh, seasickness. Um, and it also created this phrase that we, we were comfortable with the martini thinking about how dry you'd like it. You yeah. know, I'd like a dry martini. How, how dry would you like it? So how much vermouth are you going to have in your dry martini? And then with the pink gin, you would ask in or out. So if you, if you find an old school bartender in New York uh, or, or in London and you ask, you order a pink gin and, and just straight up say, uh, pink gin, please. Those that know their stuff will ask you in or out. And this is a throwback to whether you were an officer or a sailor. And okay. officers were basically allowed as much as they liked. They had their rations. So they would take the Angostura and they would add it to their glass with their gin and they kept all the Angostura in their glass. Mm-hmm. Um, the poor old sailors didn't have access to as much, so they would add it to their, uh, their, their, their cup, they'd swell it around, and then they'd tip out the excess into their buddy and on and on. So they would just put a coating of the bitters, and so it was, it was out. So you either drank it in, which was a heavy amount of Angostura, or out, which was just a rinse and, wow. and flicking the excess out. Never heard that before. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, I did, there's a there's if you in terms of then degrees, the pro the the most Angostura heavy version uh, comes from the Malay Peninsula where they have a drink. Actually, ended up on the on the menu at the the Raffles Hotel on the Long Bar there. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, I'm going to crucify the pronunciation, but it's gin pahit, P A H I T, which translates simply as bitter gin. And that was a combination of gin and Angostura. But that ratio, the one on the uh, in Raffles Hotel was three to one, so three parts gin to one part Angostura. Jeez. So, that's yeah. that's full up. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the story goes that a lot of the expats out there struggled with uh, with their stomach, mm-hmm. struggled with the cuisine, and so went very heavy on the Angostura bits to try and uh, alleviate that. And also, so, Angostura is correct me if I'm wrong, but forty ish percent. Yeah. ABV. This is not like vermouth where we're diluting with another alcohol, but that alcohol is a fortified wine. This is yeah. <laughs> two spirits, nothing else. Yeah, and, and that's sort of, yeah, well, we, we'll get on to the technical kind of production or making the drink in a bit, I guess. But um, it's funny, we, my years of Plymouth hearing, we used to love getting um, stories, anecdotes, people popping into the distillery, um, sending us letters and stuff. Because it's such an old brand, um, there's a lot of passion behind it, but there's also some great stories and anecdotes we hear. And we had one letter, someone write in about um, their, their 
uncle or grandfather or something had been a, a, a captain in, in the British Royal Navy. And he, he had written in that, that pink gin should just be Plymouth gin, Navy strength, obviously. So, so mm. 57%. Uh, Angostura bitters, room temperature, nothing else. And you're like, I right. mean, historically <laughs> oh, accurate, I'm sure. But I mean, that is, that's, that's, what's that? A 36 hour flight with four layovers that you need to be having that one after? I'm not sure. <laughs> Seems full on for that's me. Just- yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a great uh, yeah, it's a great drink. I mean, and it's it's funny. It's I, I feel like it's it's fun, and it's I, if you like it, great. Mm-hmm. Um, but a bit like other like spirit forward cocktails, like the martini. There's a there's I think the problem to the the broader audience sometimes with these recipes is there is a there is an association that these drinks knock your socks off. I can't drink that; it's too strong, and it and uh, see, I'm harping back to dilution. But drinks like martinis for me are so dangerous because you sip them and they're like, oh, that's delicious. And that's, it should be a pleasure Mm. and easy to drink and have all these amazing flavors. It shouldn't be a sip and like, I'm, I'm tough enough to drink this. I mean, essentially this drink is, is, is like an old school martini where martinis always had bitters in them, you know, really up until about the 1950s and, uh, just without the booth. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really dry martini. Essentially it's, uh, it's an old fashioned without added sugar. It's It's, how many people have a martini these days when they just have gin over, you know, gin stirred over ice and, and and maybe, you know, a spray of vermouth in there. It's yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's funny. It sort of fits in that world. And yet it has been Mm -hmm. lost to to history somewhat. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that and tell us about as well, why, when, when we think about Angostura bitters as well, maybe this is too much of a tangent, but maybe the two are linked. When we think about Ango, we think about a lot of other base spirits. Gin definitely doesn't come to mind first when perhaps it should, but you know, you might go down the route. Well, basically, you know, you're thinking about your classic whiskey drinks there. So, so where does that change happen? And and yeah, why does the why does the pink gin fall out of favor? I think that, that it fell out of favor, as we were mentioning. Obviously, it's, it's linked with the British Royal Navy, uh, British Royal Navy, and and it seemed to, which is an interesting one because we just talked about in and out and and the sort of sailors and the, so it, it seemed to be a drink of of every man, and yet it did appear to to change and. And um, my my only guess is that maybe it became it, it the only way it transferred was maybe into the the sort of officers' clubs on shore. So this is kind of how it, it went from on ship to to shore, and and therefore it was more limited to to officers. Uh, maybe that you know the, the the men started drinking more rum, and the gym was kept for the officers. Mm-hmm. It's 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 hard to tell exactly, but it's it certainly you know when. When you think about kind of drinks in in, in culture, when we think about drinks in writing and, and in film, um, it, it, it often is used. You know, what someone drinks is is used to paint a picture of who someone is, and yeah. and certainly from the sort of twenties, thirties. You know, when we look at literature and then film in that period, it was a, a shorthand for saying someone was very much upper upper middle class uh, if they drank pink gin. Uh, it's also known as pinkers. Uh, which, there we go. You know, outrageously <laughs> British. Thing, <laughs> really? you, know? <laughs> you, you talk about that extended pinky finger as well. There, I mean, you just that, you you just comes to mind straight away. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's what the captain in in the, was it the Cruel Sea, uh, a classic World War Two naval film. He drinks pink gin. You know, is all stern and you know, you know, grim faced and stuff. And you know, Bond drinks it in uh, Man with the Golden Gun, I think. 
Um, and, and you know, it's 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 sort of just it's as British as fish and chips, really. Mm-hmm. And then we see the switch. Um, probably there's a film called Look Back with Anger, Richard Burton in 1959, and and he's a working class man, and he he falls in love and marries this this upper class woman. And it's really, uh, it's a film all about the, you know, the tension there between between you know the the, the class system in the UK, uh, in England, and and Britain is you know has always been very well defined, <clears throat> and it was really to to show just how bad that could be. And in one scene, you know, uh, when when someone asks his wife for a drink, uh, if if she'd like a drink, Richard Burton just snarls, you know, she'll have a pink gin, you know, that's what she's used to, and it was. It was a sign of like, you know, she's she's a snob, you know, and that's what she drinks. Right. So it really kind of was this definition of old school Britishness, that old British reserve. And mm-hmm. then and then you can see it in, in that film there is a bit of a there's definitely a backlash. Mm-hmm. And and you know, around that period, if we think that period of time, it's you know, post Second World War, going into the sixties, you know, that was when really the cocktail culture in the UK was dying off anyway. And and mm-hmm. Drinks like the Martini, the Pink Gin, etc. These these great classic cocktails were really then only surviving in the sort of hotel bars and, and the private members' club, etc. Mm-hmm. It, it really been lost. You know, the the sixties, seventies, obviously, you know, it was a different period, and and it wasn't really about the the classic cocktails mm-hmm. we we know and love today. Well, I think so many people are going to be listening now and just so interested to try this now after that incredible backstory you've given us there. So thank you for that. Now tell us about the ingredients and, and uh, okay, we've, we've gone into the ingredients here already, right? I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because you told us already that you, you worked extensively with Plymouth gin before and we know that this is a historically accurate gin to be using for this. Tell me why that works more than that. What is it about Plymouth particularly that you believe works so well with Angostura in, in this cocktail? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the other great kind of naval drink we think of is the Gimlet. And, and yeah. you know, there is this historical reference. I would say I think these drinks have become part of gin, like law, canon. You can make it with any gin you like. Yeah. It does work really well with Plymouth, though, on that, that being said, because Plymouth is a, a sweeter style of gin. It, it uses sweet orange peel. And, and although there's no sugar in the gin, uh, your brain, you know, how we taste, it, it comes forward on the palate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you detect the sweetness because of that sweet orange peel, and obviously the bitters fit more of the sit more at the back. And, and Plymouth doesn't have any of those really bitter botanicals. Juniper is sour and has a little bitterness, but it it's really a forward and middle of the palate gin. Yeah, and so adding bitters really complements that uh, really beautifully and, and brings that kind of nice bitter finish on it. So you really get this roll of flavor all the way from the front of the palate all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it does work incredibly well in that sense. And, and I think the citrus notes along with the sort of spicy notes of the bitters mm-hmm. um, in the gin. And then if you like a twist on, on your pink gin again, it just, it just sits very well with this soft citrus style, slightly mm-hmm. sweeter gin. And then this nice sort of spicy bitter finish on, on the back end. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, one of my biggest watchouts would be Navy Strength, okay, which is which is fantastic. Um, but it's 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 exactly the same gin, comes off exactly the same still, so it's exactly the same middle cut. Um, it just simply has less water added to it, um, okay. before going into bottle. Um, and and you know, it, it's a higher strength. You know, it was 
famously taken on board ship by the British Royal Navy, you know, for, for many reasons, obviously. Uh, there's some great legends about, you know, being able to relight gunpowder and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, but obviously, you know, the higher the strength, you, you've got water on board ship. Yeah, you've got to carry less, you know, there's less barrels of it, yeah. um, obviously, if it's higher strength. So there's some practical sense to it as well. But again, you know, dilution again, but Navy strength is 57%. It's incredibly strong. Um, yeah. If you decide, to, I guess we'll get on and talk about how to make it, but if you decide to stir the strength down, I would always add water as well as stir it. Because mm-hmm. what happens with Navy strength <laughs> is that it gets so cold when you're stirring it. I guess if you look at a graph that would slope up, you, you stir it you take the bottle off the uh, off the back bar or whatever, you pour it in, you add your ice and you start stirring and, and the dilution you add is is quite rapid at first and then the drink gets colder and then so the rate of dilution starts to slow right. uh, uh, as you stir on. And Navy strength is so, so much stronger. You, by the time you're stirring and you're tasting it, like it's still really strong because it's got so cold. The dilution is so slow now. It, it doesn't take you a bit longer. It, it takes forever to stir it down wow so i i would always recommend if you're stirring down navy strength add, add a splash of water um yeah, yeah. That, that would be a, a tip for anything with with navy strength whatever cocktail you're making if you're using an, a, an over overproof spirit of any description um just beware it's they're great because there's so much alcohol which means they carry so much flavor from the still all the way to to the glass it's yeah. amazing you know and they're actually brilliant in low ABV cocktails, which sounds ridiculous, but because these carry so much flavor and so much essential oil, um, you can get away with using a very small amount actually and make a a low ABV cocktail that still actually carries flavor. But just, just, I would say if if you're gonna be like super, uh, you know, you wanna be very traditional and use a Navy strength, just just beware. Again, we don't want people sipping this and being, wow, what is this? This And then never coming back to it. So then, yeah, let's talk about making it. You, you've spoken about stirring this drink. Um, talk us how. Talk us through how you do it. And also, um, I believe I've mentioned this on the show before, but we've we've had previous conversations about martinis, and I yeah. I think it was you who told me a great technique, which would be kind of um, if I wanted it exceptionally dry to stir my gin over ice first and then perhaps add my vermouth at the end. Was that you who told me that? Or was that someone else? No, it wasn't you. Okay, forget it. But there, what I'm getting Are to there is... you cheating on me talking to other people about martinis? <laughs> I will redeem myself shortly. I've got another one to pull out the bag and I'm bloody hoping that was you too. So what I mean by that is people have idiosyncrasies when it comes to stirring. They have, yep. they have their own techniques... Do you have any advice to share on that? And also, first of all, quantities of, of, of both products here. And yeah, tell me about stirring. Yeah, it's um, it's such a simple drink. It's, it's, I think it's, it's been its strength and its weakness and maybe why it, it fell away because there aren't necessarily these strict rules. You know, you've got the naval officer saying, what, room temperature, just add it to a glass. You know, you go into this bar, they'll stir it. You go into another bar, they'll just pour it, you know, over ice. Um, you know, uh, the Savoy cocktail book, you know, so yeah. shake it. Uh, and, and Maybe they were you know, using Navy you, strength there. I don't know. I was going to say, you know, it, it's sort of, I mean, much as I would always say, you know, don't shake a martini. It's only because it's more difficult to maintain consistency every time of dilution. But, you know, I'm sure you've been to like, some of these great steakhouses in, in the US and you order a dry martini 
and it's about a pint of gin. Mm-hmm. And they make about 10,000 of them a day. And the guy shakes it and you get the whole shaker of it. And you're like, oh my God, there's a bottle of gin in this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I've had loads that have been absolutely brilliant. You know, they've been delicious. He's and fantastic why? Martini. Because he, you don't get a choice in how much vermouth. So he knows the strength of the alcohol going in. He knows how long he needs to shake it with. He's got a big well of ice. So the ice is at the same temperature every time. And actually his consistency is pretty good. Um <laughs> When you want the more nuance of like how much vermouth and, and et cetera, et cetera, or, you know, a gin like a uh, Navy strength, if you're making a pink gin where, you know, you're not worrying about the dilution of the, of the vermouth or, or the lowering an ABV of the vermouth because it's just a dash of ango, but what gin you're using and how strong it is. So, you know, you do have to understand those subtleties of how much water you need to add to really get it to that, that perfect point. And that's for me why stirring is actually best, generally speaking, because you're in an open vessel, um, you're stirring with ice and you can literally smell it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just for me about taste, you know, the, the key indicator for me when I'm stirring a drink down is you, you just start to smell the aromas coming off. Uh, and for me, that's that first indicator that this drink is, is getting to that point where I'm ready to serve it. Interesting. Then, you know, you can tap a little straw in there, have a taste and mm. you're like, okay, just give it a couple more seconds and we're good to go. Or, you know, the difficulty with shaking a cartel is that you don't get that opportunity right. to like smell or taste, you know, because it's enclosed and you shake it and you're hoping it's, it's fine. And, you know, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't, but you know, and even with throwing again, you've got access to the liquid at any one time. So you, you can, you can you're yeah. seeing that drink evolve and come to life. And, and that's where, and that's where I think, you know, we should think about watering cocktails is bringing it to life, not this boring thing of like, oh, I'm and, and I feel like we've we've sort of uh, almost criminalized over dilution so much <laughs> that I think the two things no bartender ever wants to hear someone turn around and say, especially another bartender or, or drinks expert is that, oh, that's delicious, a little sweet or that's delicious, a, a little over diluted. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like a steak in the heart, you know, and and I think it's it's kind of ended up making bartenders prefer to, I'd rather be a little under diluted. I'd rather be right. too sour than like too sweet. Cause it, it seems like the, the biggest sin that we can, we can actually uh, offer, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's, you've, I think you've really got to be, you know, keep the courage of your convictions and, and get that dilution point, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to that perfect moment. And, and so for me, you know, stirring is, is that way that gives you that access that allows mm-hmm. you to get in there and, and, and really sort of smell it. If you want to take gin straight out of the freezer, for example, you know, like a lot of people like to keep their spirits in the freezer, um, you can serve it straight into the glass over ice, but you're just going to, for that, you're going to really need to understand what gin you've got in the freezer and, and how much water, you know, what that perfect dilution point is. Right. And then you would just add cold water to it. And then you could maybe give it a little stir. Um, but in terms of spec here, way. we're talking two ounces and, and, or like you said, it's preference before, but what's your preference? This, this is a, this is a cocktail that you have explored a lot. What's your preference in terms of quantities <laughs> of gin and Angostura here? I mean, yeah, I get a, <laughs> a family measure. Uh, a friend's measure of gin, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, per one, what do you want? A couple of ounces mm-hmm. of, of gin. Um, and then there's just so many different ways of actually serving it. I, I, there's been a big trend of, of people drinking gin and soda. Mm-hmm. 
um, instead of uh, instead of gin and tonics. Um, people are aware that you know there's there's quite a lot of sugar in tonic, and, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll have one or two, and then maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna switch off the 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 tonic and onto gin and soda. And that's actually been a lot of people I've I've grabbed. I'm like, well, add some mango, add some mango, add some nice. to it. Like, oh oh yeah, you know, yeah, it's like it's pink gin. It's just a longer sparkling version mm-hmm. of, of pink gin. Um, you know, I like an orange twist with that nice highball. You know, do a three to one ratio. So you know, ounce and a half, two ounces of uh, of the gin, and then three times that of, of sparkling water. Um, nice twist of a uh, big twist of orange. It's a great drink in that the summer. Incredible. You know, and then and then the Angostura, you just really add to taste. Uh, again, it's that in and out uh, mm-hmm. old. You know, th- harping back. Really, that should be to taste. You know, how how far you want to how far you want to take it. Um, and color wise, encourage people. To add a little bit at first, add one dash at first, have a taste and depends on the gin, you know, something soft like Plymouth, it's very easy to actually suddenly just be drinking a, a glass of Angostura. <laughs> um, so, you know, depending on the gin you're using, you know, with, with a bolder gin, you can probably go a little heavier, mm-hmm. but just find what works for you. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I am a martini drinker. So if I'm stirring this over ice, I, I, I'm yeah. finding my kind of perfect shade of pink in the glass. I'm getting yeah. the aromatics. I'm thinking, okay, I'm there. If yeah. I'm serving this up, what am I serving it in? Am I am I going with a garnish for that, or or is that completely superfluous? Okay, like I'd say exactly like the martini. You know, mm-hmm. the choice is yours. Uh, I would, I'd, it's it's lemon or orange. I would say are the two best twists to go with. Um, and and as you as you rightly said, I would normally add the bitters in with the gin, and then the ice goes in, and then we're going to stir that down together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong with you know, if you, if you want to adjust it and add the bitters afterwards, you yeah. can. I mean, as well, I tell you what, everyone's about Instagram and, and beautiful photographs. Watching Ango, you know, cascade through ice or, or diffuse into a cocktail, it just nice. is beautiful. Yeah. Um, and there's some real beauty about the simplicity. And then, yeah, stir it down, serve it in whatever you prefer, Nick and Nora, Coop, mm-hmm. V-shape, whatever cocktail glass you like. Um, and it's one of those weird drinks for me. It, it sort of works like the martini is an aperitif, light, mm-hmm. dry, beautiful pre-dinner um but then if you go a little heavier on the anger story it was actually a drink i would quite often drink much later at night like digestive if i exactly exactly Amazing. after a heavy meal because, as well yeah because you've got the anger story in there you got that nice dry it's like it used to be uh i used to be a big fan of drinking that yeah mm. exactly like after dinner you've no um, you've no idea how often i i finish the meal and i want to have a martini i'm like i just can't and I don't want to move on to a Manhattan because I'm not a big fan. You're not ready <laughs> yet. Yeah, I guess I guess I, just, I, I, I would normally go to a Sazerac, but now pink gin. It's food for thought, isn't it? And yeah. it's like actually the, the I did one for Plymouth years ago. We sort of reinvented. We I did a reinvention of the gin parhit, mm-hmm. uh, the bitter gin, and I'm not going to quite the the three to one ratio, but a very heavy uh, few dashes of Angostura, and then served that over ice. Kind of looking like an old fashioned, really, with a with a twist. Uh, sorry, not with a twist, with a slice of orange. A bit more like a Negroni, I would say. Ooh. Slice of orange, that little hint of sweetness you get from the slice of orange. Obviously, a twist as well over the top for the essential oils, and have that as a sort of a bit more mm-hmm. of a sipper, a bit more, a bit heavier, a bit more bitterness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, I think it's it's two ingredients, and yet actually you can present it in this sort of highball, super light, refreshing. Sat by the pool, mm-hmm. lunchtime style drink. You know, you can sit, stir it up, sit at the you know fancy cocktail bar pre dinner, 
and have one little twisted lemon served in Nick and Nora, beautiful. Amazing. And then later on, you can go heavier on the Angostura, slice of orange, serve it on the rocks, and and sip away as more of a, a Negroni Sazerac digestif style drink. You know, it's and when you think that the choices, you know, Plymouth's obviously an old favorite of mine, always will be. But the choice of gin we have out there is is massive, and you know, these people look. There's some terrible gin out there. There's some brilliant gin out there, but. People are spending a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money searching for these amazing ingredients um, to go and put in their gin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the time we then just go and sling it in a glass with tonic and lemon juice and, and blah, 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 yeah. you know. And actually, if you do really enjoy gin, you know, just to have gin and, and some dilution to unlock it and a few drops of bitters is a really beautiful way if you actually enjoy a gin to really enjoy it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's why it's why. I've drunk, I love all sorts of different martinis, but, but I still really enjoy a very, you know, very, very dry, basically a naked martini, you mm-hmm. know, just cause I enjoy gin. So yeah. I don't like a garnish because you know, the citrus oils are really strong. So if you love gin, it's, a, this is a great little drink for you as well. It is it's just a, go and see what this distiller is doing, you mm-hmm. know, by re- finding these ingredients, you know, try out what this, don't just stick it with tonic, maybe actually try it out for what it's, what it's, you know, what they've been doing, what they've been spending this time, you know, all this, all this writing on the back of the label. Yeah. Why don't you actually see what it's for? You Find know, it out. See if it's Unlock any good. it. Yeah. It's a pink gin, <laughs> whatever you want it to be. For me, I'm thinking final thought from my end here on pink gin is this is a wonderful airplane cocktail. And I mean that in terms of I'm going to take on on my carry on a little bottle of Ango. I'm going to order some gin over some ice and I'm just going to add it in myself there. That's going to, you know, that saves me taking vermouth onto the plane these days. So, uh, I don't know. And I, <laughs> That's actually, a joke. It's I'm a not always point. having vermouth on the, I'm not, yeah, only sometimes I'll take my own vermouth on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually because it can, it has this tendency to sound a bit nerdy and a bit, Oh, you've got to be a, a real booze nerd to enjoy this. And, and it's actually, uh, I actually do know a few people that aren't in the booze industry mm. and uh, strange as that might be. And uh, <laughs> they've actually, it's like you said, it's a great drink that can be actually drunk anywhere. And it's, um, you can just order gin on the rocks. You know, if you like, or oh, the ice isn't gray or whatever, I'll just, I'll just get gin on the rocks, please. And yeah, could I get a, a glass of water, please? Mm. And uh, have you got any Angostura? And you can just sort of sit there quite happily. And, uh, like, everything all right amazing you know and so it's kind of like one of those if you're not in a in a in a, in a cocktail environment but you don't want to you know you don't want to just drink a beer or something like that and you do fancy having something like that and and it's always shocked me the people that i've handed this to and they're what what are you drinking i mean i it's, it's pink gin it's a really old and like and they've gone that's delicious what is it and and, and then this it's what <laughs> you know <laughs> And I think its versatility has been its is its massive strength, but maybe it's been its weakness because it's not it's not just one not thing. Not so clearly so defined. Walk into a bar yeah. and just order a pink gin isn't that there isn't that association. And and obviously it has. I think over here on the west coast, it, it didn't. I don't think it really ever made it this far. Particularly, I think you know on the east coast and still in London, I think a, a lot of bartenders certainly of, a, of an age would know would have an idea what it is. Um, but it would be great to see it uh, come back, whether it be in the long version or, you know, stirred and up. Uh, I think it's a it's a drink that has a, a huge amount to offer. And uh, if if no more for just as bartenders understanding how much we can, you know, how much we can make from just two very yeah. simple ingredients. Yeah. 
non yeah and non-perishable as well could not be simpler yeah exactly <laughs> well Seb thank you so much for that that's been absolutely wonderful we're going to now take Pleasure. it to the final final section of the show the the desert island discs style finish here don't get to say that with everyone but a few people understand it and we're going to finish with our five stock questions how's that sound sounds good awesome so question one number one here for you very intrigued what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate behind your back bar <laughs> you see I, I obviously my career in a lot of ways has been around gin but um but i do, I do irish whiskey yeah nice gin is a probably oh then maybe rum but yeah it's those two are probably. I'm actually looking up at my shelf now. Going, yeah, it's it's probably a it's probably a close tie between gin and Irish whiskey. Incredibly exciting time for Irish whiskey at the moment. My wife's also half Irish, so it might have something to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. There. Second question for you: Which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Yeah, I saw this, and and I. <laughs> I reckon there's there's a tool that we had in, in the couple of bars I, I used to have and chopsticks. They're not mm -hmm. bar tools, but everyone should have a chopstick at their at their fingertips. They're brilliant. They're they're super they're, they're really great for stirring. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a smart, you know, you obviously want something smart, but they're great for, for shaping uh, peels for when you want to make twists. But they just, you know, when when this one piece of ice there is just in the wrong place at, they're great little pokey sticks, they're stirrers. They're just like, you know, it, it seems like it. such a, a, a useless, stupid thing. And, and uh, you know, with Kandra, we, we talk about making drinks at home with all sorts of, you know, you mm -hmm. don't have to have this. A French press or cafetiere makes a brilliant, it's an amazing tool for making martinis, by the way. I mean, mm -hmm. that very fine mesh, you never get any chips of ice or anything through. Uh, and stir it with a with a chopstick. I mean, they're, they're just a, a brilliant bit of kit. And I know it's not, technically a bartending bit of kit but we uh every station had uh had a very sh mm. very smart silver chopstick uh in the kit just for those are these sorts. are the answers that we love in this section <laughs> this segment of the show because there's only so many times we can hear jigger <laughs> as important as jiggers are question number three <laughs> what's the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry oh man it's 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 an interesting one it's I wouldn't say it's one person's advice. It's just been the collective of of those around and just, it's about passion. And that has been, I think, talking right at the beginning about my early days, mm -hmm. and, you know, just, it wasn't for money. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously down the line, I, you know, I, I believed I could turn this into a career and and that there'd be a way of making a living, you know, but you've got to love it. Yeah. And and you know we're it is a business and we've got to make money and it is technical and it can be demanding and, and whatever but it's it's a fun industry to be in so passion and enjoyment for me because you can tell you can tell whether it's someone talking about a brand someone behind the bar talking about their, their cocktails their food 
it's just you've got to love it because Mm -hmm. if you don't then no one believes you yeah and 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 go and find something else to do or something that makes you happy if it doesn't make you happy don't do it and and a lot of the time actually in terms of me giving advice on from that with a lot of people moving from say behind the bar into brand roles i was like look just maybe don't jump at the first brand that that offers you a corporate card if if you don't truly love it because Mm -hmm. you kind of live and live and breathe that brand like you to be good at it, you want to be, you want to be in love with that brand and be the epitome of it, and and be proud to be associated with that brand. Mm-hmm. So, I think whatever you do, you know, I've learned from those around me. You know, do 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 it to the best and do it with passion and, and love what you're doing. Awesome, love it. Question number oh, that four. Was awful. That's, that sounded like something that should be up on a wall in a terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. I love wine. I sometimes cook with it or whatever. You know, it's like, oh. <laughs> Live, laugh, love, preach, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, whatever you do, do it with passion. I'm never going to be able to listen to this. No. <laughs> whatever you, whatever you do, do it with dilution. <laughs> oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Question number four: If you could only visit one bar, one last bar in your life, which one would it be? No, you can't ask me that. <laughs> I read that and I was like, um. So I've been in trouble with so many people. You can, uh, it can be historical that doesn't exist anymore, if that helps. Uh, not really. <laughs> it's I don't know. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think the joy of bars is it's it's where what mood are you in and where you're at, mm-hmm. and there's just something wonderful about some of the old school London hotel bars. Uh, yeah, and actually New York. There's a couple in LA as well. We just that old school. You know, you got a proper pair of shoes on, and and uh, you know, yeah, uh, you've got dressed <laughs> after pandemic. You got dressed properly for once, and you know, <laughs> you've gone in there and just that that process of sitting at a bar and someone stirring a martini down for you is. I'm just as much a lover as being in a dive, but I love dive bars. You mm. know, a pint of very crappy beer and a shot of mm-hmm. Irish whiskey it makes me very happy. But I guess push me, I got to be in a a dimly lit hotel bar with a great bartender stirring me down a, a dry martini and just you know Excellent. Uh, uh, yeah that, that would be probably I'm there with you choice. if I'm invited such a cliche <laughs> but it's just you know no, it's, it's one of those things about. that just sucks you in isn't it that, that, that kind of experience absolutely and if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last final question here what would you order or make? I mean, I feel like I should say pink gin because, <laughs> like, what's this guy on about? Just I give mean, me the bottle of just give me the bottle of gin. gin and the bottle of Ango and let me be on my way. I tell you what, it would be uh, it would be. In that ilk, it would mm. either be gin and sherry. Uh, I, I love, uh, especially this time of year, switching up the mood for Amontillado sherry, but that kind of heavier, nuttier, but still on a dry end. Um, or maybe something like a, a you know, ah, uh, yeah, or a, a, a you know, like a, a fino sherry, mm-hmm. or or actually, you know, depending on feeling, uh, just gin and bitters stirred, like whether it be ango or another bitters, but something of that ilk, mm-hmm. it's gin stirred up mm-hmm. perfection maybe it's just that maybe it's just gin <laughs> stirred up 
And final bonus here for you. Something I would like you to share with the world if you're willing to. The world's best bar snack to have with a martini that you definitely put me onto. And if you didn't put me onto this one, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave the show now if there was someone else. But oh, I think you did. So this might be interesting. It's, it was this uh, what I told you about I had in Japan by mistake. Yes. Yeah. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, very dry. Actually, it was a beef eater. Uh, so a big, bold, like London-style dry martini. Mm-hmm. Uh, twist of lemon. And I don't normally like a twist on a martini at all. But twist of lemon. And then on the side, and we'd ordered, uh, I was with a guy called Nathan O'Neill. Uh, and uh, we were in Japan together. And it just happened to coincidence. That's what we were drinking. And that was what the spa snack was. And the pairing was just phenomenal. And it was a rice cracker with mascarpone uh, cheese on top and then a, just a drizzle of honey. And that paired with the dry martini just was amazing. It's phenomenal. Actually, there you go. That's what I'll have. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> my, my, my final drink. Bravo. Yeah, that's such a, I hadn't thought about that for a little while, actually. That's such a, yeah, that was a phenomenal combination. It's a it's the, the dry rice cracker, right? It's not the sweet one with the, yeah, yeah it's the dry yeah. one. It's super plain dry. And it's just, it's almost like this sort of instant fat wash on, on your palate. Yeah. It's just amazing. And that hint of sweetness. And that's why I say I don't, I normally don't like a twist on a martini, but then that, that twist of lemon on, on top of the martini as well. And and whatever, you know, a, a bolder gin, I would suggest. I mean, well, actually just pick whatever your favorite is, but, but you know, just a nice ice cold dry martini with, with that. Just, yeah, great combination. Love it. <laughs> Well, thank you so Glad much. Glad I got it right. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Glad it was you who told me about it. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's delicious. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really went back there just into my mind. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. Well, Seb, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I, I bet every single person is going to go out there right now and bring gin and Angostura together. You really sold it. So thank you so much. Brilliant. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, and, and let me know if you need anything else, follow up or, or whatever. I'll let you know. Amazing. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>